Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. England saw further COVID restrictions introduced this week to combat the Omicron variant as Boris Johnson encountered his most turbulent days as Prime Minister to date. What we hope is by taking the action now, you know, sooner rather than later, the type of action that we set out, the working from home, the, the rules on, on face masks, the, the use of the NHS COVID passport, we can avoid further action later. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be analysing the new COVID restrictions which Health Secretary Sajid Javid explained just before. Was there a scientific logic behind them? And what data about Omicron has spooked the government? And will these measures work? Science reporter Oliver Barnes will explain, along with our special guest Anjana Huja, the FT science commentator. And later, we'll be unpacking a disastrous week for Boris Johnson, who faces a Tory rebellion not only over those new Covid rules, but on whether a series of parties were held in Downing Street that broke lockdown rules, and who exactly paid for the refurbishment of the PM's residence. Political editor George Parker and political correspondent Laura Hughes will look at just how much trouble the Prime Minister is in. But Oliver and Ange, welcome to the podcast. Hey. Hi. Hi, Seb. Good to be here. Now, thanks both for coming on. I have to ask you, obviously, this is our last formal Payne's politics of the year. And everything's got an eerie resonance to this time last Christmas when obviously we're in a much worse situation because of the jabs. But everyone's plans on Christmas has started to fell apart. Oliver, has much changed for you in the past week or are you going about life as before? I'm going about life as before, but I'm frenetically searching for a walk-in booster clinic. So that's my big ambition for pre-Christmas, because as we know, they've opened up uh, the jabs to people who've had them who had their second dose three months ago, and that applies to me. But I can't book it yet through the NHS booking platform, so I'm going to try and find a walk-in in the next few days. Well, that's my plan too. My second booster was way back in June, so I definitely need to try and do that. And what about you? How's how is your Christmas shaping up with these new rules? Well, interesting. You should ask. I'm very glad I haven't bought a very large turkey because I don't know how that's going to going to go down uh, as we progress towards Christmas. Um, I have been boosted. So I have three doses of the Pfizer. And uh, I also had COVID last year. So I am quadruple boosted. Um, so I hope that I'm invincible. Well, it certainly sounds like you are bursting with antibodies. Well, on that, <laughs> let's go into the main topic of the week. The Omicron variant of COVID has well and truly landed in Britain. The government confirmed the community transmission is now taking place and cases are growing. So for health reasons, although some allege for politics, the so-called Plan B further restrictions in England was introduced this week. Working from home will be recommended for the near future, while vaccine passports will become mandatory for the first time at big events, along with more indoor mask wearing. Speaking at a Downing Street press conference, Boris Johnson said that latest data about Omicron showed the government had to act now. We don't yet know Omicron's severity, its exact rate of transmission, 
nor indeed the full effectiveness of our vaccines against it. But since I last spoke to you, it's become increasingly clear that Omicron is growing much faster than the previous Delta variant, and it's spreading rapidly all around the world. Well, Oliver, it was a rather abrupt decision to introduce these Plan B measures, which the FT broke the news story on Wednesday morning this was coming. And some people in Whitehall accuse this of being a dead cat, which is a media strategy to try and distract from one very bad news story by putting a big old news story on the table separately. But obviously, is there new data at Omicron that would say, actually, the Prime Minister and the health advisors had to act? Why was the decision taken very abruptly late on Tuesday night to do this on Wednesday? Well, yeah, perhaps it was driven by a media strategy, but it's also driven by the underlying data. We've only seen a few hundred confirmed Omicron cases in the UK. And obviously, most of those are kind of hiding behind the stubbornly high, but basically flat delta wave we've had for a while. But what scientists are seeing is that Omicron infections appear to be doubling roughly every two to three days. And when a virus is doubling every two to three days, it can grow very, very quickly. We we heard from Sajid Javid in the House of Commons that likely the figures we have on Omicron are an underestimate and maybe we have the number of infections in the thousands. He even said we could get to a million infections a day by the end of the month, which is an extraordinarily high number. And what concerns scientists and government is Obviously, we don't know the severity of this. It could be less severe, early reports from South Africa suggest. But if you have a large wave of reinfections and breakthrough infections for vaccinated people, that means people who are vulnerable get exposed, and that could lead to a large wave of hospitalizations as well. And what do you make of the Omicron variant and the threat towards the UK? Because obviously, as Oliver said, there's still some uncertainty about the effectiveness of vaccines, whether it creates more severe illness. But one thing that is very clear, and we've seen this week in several reports, is the fact that it does spread more rapidly. And that obviously creates a knock-on effect, which means more people will get it. A subset of that will get seriously ill and a subset of that, again, are more likely to go in hospital. So do you think this is the right decision to move now? I do. It does seem prudent to me. I was talking to Graham Medley, who is chair of infectious disease modelling at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And he was saying that, you know, the way it's spreading now, it's so transmissible, as Oliver says, you know, it, it could be you know, up to four times as transmissible as Delta, in which case you're going to get a lot of cases kind of concertina together. And it's not beyond possibility that you could get kind of four months of an epidemic squashed up in a, in one month. And I think that's very frightening because when you have, even if it's milder, if you have a very small fraction of a very large number, as I won't have been the first to point out, that Omicron arithmetic then has to collide with hospital capacity. And that's where the danger zone lies. So absolutely bringing in more measures seems to be the right thing to do in, if, if we're going to stop the NHS being overwhelmed. Now, Oliver, what about these measures, though? Because obviously they are certainly the lighter touch end of what could have been done under Plan B. And in that cabinet meeting on Wednesday, we heard that there was a fair amount of pushback from various ministers that the Chancellor Rishi Sunak was particularly concerned about the economic impact because there is no new economic package to support these restrictions. But we've obviously got face masks in all indoor circumstances, except pubs and restaurants, which is a pretty big exception there. We've got the work from home order from Monday 
Monday as guidance, not as law, saying whenever you can. And then also vaccine certification for large events, but not for going to the pub or restaurant. So it feels like they've done the minimum possible with an eye on the economy. But is that actually going to do much to slow the spread of Omicron? Yeah, and underlying all of that is this is plan B. What's plan C? Question mark. I think the thing is, the main two interventions would be masking. If we can up masking, that will cut transmission. And of course, we can. if we can get more people to work from home, they'll reduce their social contacts. The problem with plan B in a way is that we never really returned to normality in the past few months. If you look at uh, the COMIC study, also from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which kind of monitors the amount of social mixing that everyone's doing, we're way below pre-pandemic levels. And that's because in places like in cities like London, Manchester, Birmingham, where a lot of people can work from home, they're still doing it to a big extent. So the question of these measures is actually how much are they going to reduce people's social contacts. And that's why we've ended up with these kind of rather amusing questions of, can you work from home, but then can you go in and have a work party? And it's left a number of people quite baffled. So it'll be interesting to see how people respond to this and whether it does suppress contacts and therefore transmission of the of the virus. Now, the government is very much focusing on boosters still as the way out of this. And I think there's been some data out that shows that the, the Pfizer booster is still very effective against Omicron, hence why the government is putting all efforts on that. And Chris Whitty, England's chief medical officer, explained that at that Downing Street press conference announcing the new measures. It looked as if he was going to be able to evade uh vaccination and now clinically we know that it can in terms of infection so we know that is an issue therefore the boosters become significantly more important and we know that we're going early now so as to try and be able to slow this down at an early stage of events. Well Ange to follow on what Chris Whitty said there is the evidence quite clear on boosters and how confident are you that this mix of light touch measures will delay the spread of Omicron for the UK to get boosted enough that the NHS doesn't face a really serious situation because it feels like it's quite a tight calculation that ministers have made. I think you're right it is tight. I think it does depend on how quickly we can get boosters into arms because as you said that there are actually have been about three studies on that how the vaccines are holding up in terms of antibody levels. And it certainly seems to be, when I was talking to Danny Altman, an immunologist at Imperial College, he was saying that actually, you know, three exposures to spike give you good levels of antibody protection. So that might be two doses uh, plus a booster, two doses plus a natural infection. And he's quite confident that even if the antibody levels are low, that the second line of defence, the backup, the cellular immunity that's uh, conferred by T cells and B cells might also hold up against not infection, but against hospitalisations and, and, you know, severe illness and death. And I think that's the crucial factor. I think we've, we've been slightly panicking a bit about antibody levels. And that will tell you how good the vaccines are against preventing infection. But actually, I think the key metric we need to be worried about is how well the vaccines hold up against more severe symptoms and death. 
And Oliver, we're not really going to know that until you see the real world example as this thing spreads and it encounters people who have been boosted and those who haven't. Because above all this, the most striking thing is that those who are currently in hospital with COVID, I think 90% of them have not received any kind of vaccination. Yes. So it's it's not 90% of people in hospital. It's 90% of people in ICU. And that's kind of slightly skewed by obviously admissions policies. Often someone Mm. who might get quite severely ill may never be admitted to ICU. All scientists put major caveats on basically when they're kind of pipetting uh, a serum onto the Omicron virus and seeing how it works. Basically, we can't necessarily extract that much from that about how it will play out in the real world. I would say the best example or the best indication of what might happen is what's going on in South Africa. In South Africa, they've had a huge explosion of cases over the past few weeks in Gauteng province where the kind of first Omicron outbreak took place. But, and this is a hopeful sign, hospitalizations and deaths are tracking at a much lower level than they were. And this is probably, scientists there tell me, because of a kind of wall of immunity that's been built up, mainly from prior infection in South Africa and a bit of vaccination. Why that might put the UK in good stead is because we, in effect, have a kind of better wall of immunity. We've got not just people with prior infection, we've got people with double vaccination and prior infection, people with three vaccinations, people with three vaccinations and prior infection. So maybe that might hold up, as Anne said, against Omicron. And certainly, if it doesn't stop a wave of infections, may stop a wave of severe disease. Now, one interesting thing that was pertained to by Boris Johnson is the potential for mandatory vaccinations. Now, we've seen this threatened in terms of other countries, but this is not something that's in the UK discourse. And I was very surprised when the Prime Minister mentioned this, and he essentially said, we can't keep going through these waves of having non-summer pharmaceutical interventions such as masks and social distancing and said there may need to be a national conversation on this. But 12 hours later, Sajid Javid, the health secretary, flatly denied this would happen. I mean, I've got no interest in mandatory vaccination, apart from the high-risk settings in the NHS and social care, which we've already uh, set out that we will legislate for. Uh, Other than that, if you're talking about universal mandatory vaccination, I think Ethically, it's wrong, but also at a very practical level, it just wouldn't work. You know, sure. being, getting vaccinated has to be a positive decision. And what do you make about this debate? Because obviously there's the carrot and stick approach the government has obviously done, which the carrot is you get well and you're protected from coronavirus and the stick being well. If we're going to have vaccine passports, life will be a bit more difficult if you're not vaccinated. But universal mandatory vaccination is another level entirely. Do you think there's a risk it might backfire? Yes, I do at this point, because we know that when the fuss began about the Omicron variant, we know that there was a sudden rush for the vaccine clinics. You know, there is a well of people in the population that are not opposed to vaccination. They might need more persuasion. I do think it's a rather dangerous path to walk down at the moment, because you have to look at what you can achieve with it. And whether, you know, the ramifications will be proportionate, really. And I think that that you do risk alienating a lot of people, not just who might be suspicious of vaccination, that then will become ultra suspicious of being forced to have something that they're already a little bit reticent about. But also, you know, there is the libertarian argument. We, we have not gone down the road of compulsory vaccination in this country, including for schools. It also risks damaging trust in 
other health services. So if we want to want people to come forward in the future and, and join this collective, you know, this communal social effort to lock down a disease, I, I think I think compulsory vaccination could be counterproductive. And Oliver, you mentioned the potential for Plan C, which would obviously be more measures. And you obviously, I think at this point, talking about things like social distancing would have to come in. What would cause that? Because originally the government had said, we're not going to make a decision on further measures till the 16th, 17th of December, when Omicron had been more thoroughly examined by scientific experts in the government and around the world. But the fact we've had these measures coming sooner, people will be thinking, hang on a minute, does that mean we're going to get even more? And what do you think is the likelihood of that? Let's remember, two weeks ago, we didn't even really know what Omicron was. So data about it is so preliminary. And obviously, it's coming in by the hour, by the day. And the models that government scientists are trying to make right now about what the next few weeks and months looks like in terms of that wave of infections, a small change in the transmissibility of Omicron, a small change in its vaccine escape qualities, a small change in its severity could massively change those models. And in a way, the government is effectively waiting for kind of firmer data on some of those things before it makes decisions. And when I spoke to Neil Ferguson a few days ago, he said the kind of early scenarios they'd panned out, some of them look pretty okay. And then some of them look a lot worse than okay. And in a way, as that data emerges and becomes more solid, government decision making might become a bit easier. But they're going to have to make a decision about this in a mire of a huge amount of uncertainty about what this disease looks like and how it unfolds. And what we've learned throughout the pandemic is generally to act earlier is better. But obviously, act earlier has the risk that they might not need to act, you know, at all in a way. And finally, Ange, what's your feeling about how the winter is going to pan out based on what we do and don't know? I think it's really hard to tell, Seb. I mean, I know just from our household, we're making changes. We know lots of people are. My email inbox is full of cancelled events. So we know that people are changing their behaviour, whether hopefully with that and the hopefully good news from South Africa and other places with Omicron waves that may precede ours, then maybe we'll we'll avert the worst of it. Uh, But I think it's really, really hard to tell at the moment. We are just in a waiting game. And that's, I think, until you cycle through all the, you know, the full cycle of infections, illnesses, deaths um, across all age groups, I think it's really hard to tell how the Omicron wave is going to play out. We'll keep our fingers crossed that it's going to be milder. Oliver and Ange, thank you very much for joining. If all the Covid news wasn't enough, then Downing Street has gone into meltdown over parties. Weeks of reporting about festive gatherings held in number 10 last year came to a head when leaked video footage showed senior aides to Boris Johnson joking about cheese and wine business meetings. Allegra Stratton, a close aide to the Prime Minister who is featured in that footage that was leaked to ITV, resigned and apologised for seemingly making light of Covid restrictions. My remarks seemed to make light of the rules. Rules that people were doing everything to obey. That was never my intention. I will regret those remarks for the rest of my days and now for my profound apologies to all of you at home for them. Working in government is an immense privilege. I tried to do right by you all, to behave with civility and decency and act to the high standards you expect of number 10. Rightly expect of number 10. 
with George Parker, why has this all become such a row? Because, you know, the reporting about potential parties in Number 10, which Number 10 still deny there were actually parties, has been rumbling on for weeks. But it all sort of came to a head over the past couple of days, particularly when we saw that leaked footage you heard of Allegra Stratton there. Yes, I think that was the, the tipping point in this whole this whole affair, really, because you saw what appeared to be a confirmation that a party had taken place, the fact that they were having a mock press conference discussing how they'd respond to a questions about such a party. And secondly, the impression that was given that Allegra Stratton and some of the other people in the room were sort of laughing about it. And that's doubly bad news for the government because, first of all, it looks like they've, they've been breaking the rules, they're expecting other people to observe, often in very, very difficult personal circumstances that we all know about last Christmas. And the other one was the idea that people, they were laughing at people who were sticking to the rules. It was an incredibly toxic combination. And if you stir in all the other problems facing Boris Johnson at the moment, whether it's on COVID or his mishandling of the Owen Paston affair the other day, he's in a very serious situation. Well, Laura Hughes, you've done some fantastic reporting trying to figure out what's actually gone on there. And there's... Uh, I think in total, seven parties have been reported about all gathering, shall we say. Can you just take us through what we actually know and what happened and also what's being investigated now by the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case? Full credit should go to the Mirror and ITV who really have led these stories. The main three that are going to be investigated by Simon Case are the sort of most important ones to look at. So that's a leaving party for Lee Kane, who worked for the Prime Minister on the 13th of December, where we understand the Prime Minister popped in and gave a quick speech. My understanding is that event was quite small, so not as serious potentially as the party on the December the 18th. Now, that's the really big one. That's the one that's had all the headlines because this party we know was organised in advance. There was cheese, there was wine, there was music. There were paper awards handed out by Jack Doyle, the PM's communications chief. And this is the most damaging one because people that the FT has spoken to who were there say there were up to 40, 50 people present. Now, that is clearly a Christmas party and it's a huge breach of the rules because the time that party was held was the time London was under very restrictive lockdown. And so that's clearly a blatant breach of the rules. The other party, Simon Case, will be asked to look into took place on the 10th of December and this was held in the Department for Education by former Education Secretary Gavin Williamson where we know there were lots of civil servants gathered round again having a glass of wine you would call that a party. There are lots of other suggestions as well another leaving do that took place on November the 27th for Cleo Watson again the Prime Minister is said to have popped in and given a speech at that and made reference to how crowded that space was And then there are allegations made mostly by Dominic Cummings, I should say, that on the same day of the Lee Kane leaving party, there was allegedly further celebrations upstairs in the Downing Street flat. So, George, obviously, a lot of this comes to what on earth you define as a party. And of course, obviously, in traditional senses, people having Secret Santa, Christmas quiz, drinks would be called a party. But obviously, I think what this has exposed was during the pandemic, obviously, people in Downing Street and Whitehall were working incredibly long hours. And the lines between work and socialising may have been blurred. And of course, they, you know, we've heard reports that at the end of the day, people would often open a bottle of wine, have a glass. And I think most people 
people would say maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing because that's just people letting off steam in a very high intensive environment dealing with incredibly difficult circumstances. But there's a difference between that and what Laura's just described, which is a kind of 40 people gathering with, you know, pe- with um, reports that Jack Doyle, the director of communications, was gi- were giving out awards and there was Secret Santa. And anyway, this whole thing's become very bad for Boris Johnson and so much so that actually the Prime Minister made this rare apology in the House of Commons. I apologise. I apologise for uh, for the impression that uh, has been given uh, that staff in Downing Street take this less than seriously. Uh, I'm I, I'm I'm sickened myself and furious about that. And that's a very rare thing, George, for Boris Johnson to actually apologise for something like this, which shows how serious this the Prime Minister's taking this. Yeah, it was a. An apology, and it's unusual, but if you heard the words there, he was actually apologising for other people misbehaving rather than any action that he might have taken himself. Look, these parties, and let's call a spade a spade, in the course of public opinion, I think it would be very hard to find very many people who would think there wasn't a party in Downing Street. And in those circumstances, it's a good idea for the Prime Minister not just to apologise for the apparent um, behaviour of some of his uh, advisers who seem to be laughing about the thing, but he should come out and apologise for the fact the party took place in 10 Downing Street. This is his home. It's his official office. He would have been aware of what was going on. He's in charge. The buck stops with Boris Johnson. Now, Laura, this is being investigated by Simon Case, as I mentioned, the Cabinet Secretary, and I think some people have raised eyebrows. Is this actually what the Cabinet Secretary's role is meant to be? Is a, He's meant to be head of the civil service, not sleuthing across Whitehall, but he is looking into this, and this is all going to be done in public, and it's also been said that if there's any evidence of criminal activity, then that would be passed. The police and the investigation would be suspended. You know, where do you see this thing going? Because obviously, Tory MPs we've spoken this week are very unhappy about the situation Situation. But the general mood that I've picked up is that unless they feel the Prime Minister lied to the House of Commons when he discussed it this week, when he talked about no knowledge of a gathering on November the 13th and said that this was, he was not aware of the party on December the 18th, if either of those proved not true and the Prime Minister did have knowledge or was present, that would be a problem. But otherwise, is it just going to be junior heads rolling? There are lots of different layers to this. So if it's proved there was a party, that was illegal. And so you should expect some sort of fine. You would expect that to be passed on to the police. Because whilst the Metropolitan Police have said they're not going to investigate this retrospective case, we saw reports this week of small gatherings being prosecuted in the courts at around the same time last year. So that argument doesn't really hold. Second to that, the the really damaging thing, I think, from the last few weeks is this extraordinary position that Downing Street and the Prime Minister himself have been stuck in, really, where they said they were sure that no rules were broken, but they also didn't have a party at all. I mean, it's impossible for no rules to have been broken if there was a party, and we now know there was a party. So somebody here has been untruthful, quite frankly, and from a journalistic perspective, going into all these lobby briefings and asking these questions, we were told a party did not happen. And that's a really uncomfortable situation for the Prime Minister. If he has people working for him, let's take him aside. Let's say he really didn't know anything, which is hard to believe. The truth is, very senior people working for him have been telling journalists no party took place. So if it's found one did, somebody is going to have to lose their jobs other than Allegra Stratton here. Because I don't think you can have people in this position of power lying to the public and lying to journalists. That's incredibly serious. 
George, it obviously goes beyond parties as well because obviously when it rains, it pours. And on Thursday, it came out that the Conservative Party was fined almost £18,000 by the Electoral Commission for failing to put forward the details of this loan from Lord Brownlow to pay for the refurbishment of the Downing Street flat. And we knew this investigation was ongoing. But what's really blown this up again for the Prime Minister has been the fact the Electoral Commission said that there were WhatsApp messages between Prime Minister and Lord Brownlow essentially soliciting this donation. Now, there was a separate investigation by the Prime Minister's independent advisor on ministerial standards, who was a chap called Lord Christopher Guite, who used to be the Queen's private secretary and took this job last November. And Lord Guite, in his investigation into the whole flat business, which I'm sure our listeners have heard a lot about, he said in that investigation there'd be no communication between Johnson and Brownlow, and he accepted the Prime Minister's assurances that he had not solicited the donation. The Electoral Commission has said the complete opposite. And in some ways, this is actually more serious than the flat issue because whether people have lied in Down Street or not may come down to interpretation of who said what and who know what. But this does look as if the Prime Minister is in real trouble over this. I think that's definitely true. Um, I'm not sure it's more serious at least in terms of political damage, because the parties in Downing Street are things that connect directly to the public. The public are furious about it. I'm not sure they're quite so absorbed by the detail of the flat redecoration. But I totally agree with you, Seb, on on a moral level. Yes, it's a a very serious state of affairs that the Prime Minister appointed this um, Lord Guite as his independent advisor on standards to investigate this. Lord Guite, frankly, produced a report which was quite let's put it generously, quite light on the Prime Minister in terms of the way he had handled the redecoration. But now, following the Electoral Commission report, it looks like Lord Guite has been made to look like a bit of a patsy, that he didn't really have all the information he needed to compile that report. And possibly, Boris Johnson misled him about what he knew about Lord Brownlow, this Tory donor's contribution to the flat refurbishment. It's a really difficult situation the Prime Minister's got himself into. The Daily Mirror is a hostile newspaper and its front page newspaper headline on Friday was Another Day, Another Lie. But you can find variations of that theme running throughout the media at the moment. And I was watching the BBC's Question Time on Thursday night and someone asked the government duty minister whether she trusted Boris Johnson and she said yes. And you could see the audience either laughing or shaking their head or looking as dark as thunder, because this is a problem that the Prime Minister's got now, that there is a real sense out there that you can't necessarily take the Prime Minister at his word. And that's a really serious matter. And that's what links these two things together, Laura, isn't it? That there's this sense that's come from Downing Street that on two separate things, they've been caught out not exactly telling the truth here. And we've both done political journalism for long enough to know that um, people not telling the truth is, is, is quite a commonplace feature in politics. But it feels like these are particularly egregious examples of this. And what what's your sense of the mood with, among Tory MPs? Like, I would say it's pretty dire at the moment. It's probably the worst it's ever been for Boris Johnson because they feel the combination of the parties, which looks dreadful and goes down very badly with their voters, combined with the fact he may have lied to an investigation into his own propriety, you know, it all feels very bad, even if we're not quite in danger zone yet for the Prime Minister's position. No, exactly. And look, we all know that there are Tory MPs out there that we can call at almost any point of the year and ask whether or not they think Boris Johnson should go and they'd say yes. What was really striking to me personally this week was speaking to serving ministers who are 
normally quite balanced and very level-headed. And they were saying that they themselves were surprised at who was talking in the tea rooms about whether or not, you know, these were the ends of of the days for Boris Johnson, whether or not this actually was a tipping point. And they really emphasised that nothing's going to happen immediately, but that the mood is incredibly, incredibly unsettled at the moment in a way we haven't really seen before, actually. And they were suggesting that this goes further than the Barnard Castle Dominic Cummings row, because actually it it also indicates sort of this extraordinary inability to take hold of a crisis and get ahead of it. Ultimately, the, the constant denials have let the story about the parties roll and roll. The fact they kept saying one hadn't happened encouraged journalists like us to keep digging. And that's why more and more came out. Whereas if they had taken the approach of the Department for Education, who turned around immediately and said, oh, yes, we did. We did have a gathering. It was really inappropriate. We're terribly sorry. It sort of killed that story. But but it, it was their strategy that has got the, the party and the prime minister into this serious, serious mm. problem. That's why we're seeing calls for the police to get involved. And that's the thing as well that Tory MPs and ministers are really concerned about. How have they let it get to this point? And George, briefly, do you agree with all that as well? That, as Laura said, you know, it feels like it's gone beyond the usual suspect. And I spoke to someone who's been a long-time supporter of Boris Johnson, you know, going back well over a decade, ed- edging for him to be prime minister. And this person said to me, he's now shot half of his nine lives. We better not have any more weeks like this one. So things have clearly got bad, but they're not yet into the situation where people are actively talking about replacing him. But you could see if this goes in a bad direction, we could be into that place. Yeah, I was speaking to one MP who said that the Prime Minister was on the road to the fires of Mount Doom unless he things seriously improved. And I think that's probably a good way of describing it. Boris Johnson is on the road to a very serious confrontation with his party. But he's on the road, though. He's not there yet, as Laura was saying. At the moment, there are two things here to say. One is that he's got no firm base in the party, no, no faction, no Borisite faction that will stand up for him and defend him. That's bad, but it's also helpful in the predicament Boris Johnson's in, because what it means is there are lots of different factions in the Conservative Party, all of whom are completely fed up with Boris Johnson. But it would require them all to work together and coordinate together to have a concerted move to get rid of him. And I was speaking to one very senior MP last week who was saying it's quite difficult to organise a coup against an incumbent prime minister. It has to be very well organised. And the moment it starts, the organisation starts, people like us will hear about it. So we're not there yet. But the Prime Minister is in serious trouble. It's going to get worse for him next week because we've got a rebellion on the new COVID restrictions expected, which could be very large indeed on Tuesday. And then on Thursday, the North Shropshire by-election, where the Tories are defending a 23,000 majority Mm. in a rock-solid Tory seat with a Brexit electorate, uh, where the Liberal Democrats finished third in 2019, but where, according to the bookies at least, the Lib Dems are now favourite to win it. It's an extraordinary state of affairs. Well, it's good on those quotes to see Tory MPs aren't getting ahead of themselves as usual. Well, George and Laura, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. 
But it's not just this week. With Westminster heading into its festive season on a slightly bumpy note, so too is this podcast. But have no fear, we'll be having another run of interview specials each week over the holiday period to keep your ears filled. If you like this podcast, then yes, you know, please subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you receive your podcasts to receive episodes as soon as they're released. You can also leave us a nice positive review or a festive rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thanks for listening. And from everyone at the Financial Times and the Payne's Politics team, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.